0: Good morning and um, welcome to the Open University, Um, I'm really really pleased to see so many people here and very pleased to hear that we've got people watching uh, joining us online and from as far afield as John has said, that's really impressive. Um, my role is director of the Centre for Inclusion and Collaborative Partnerships. Um, this is a fairly new unit, which is a, a merger of a Centre for Widening Participation with OU Validation Services. So I like to see us as the, as the unit which provides access routes into higher education in all their shapes and forms. And we have a particular um, interest in employability because Anne Pegg, who is going to be leading the uh, activities today is, is located in the department and she's the lead for employability across the university. Um, I think a lot of you will know that in the UK, um, or rather in England specifically, there have been huge changes in the way fees and funding are, are organised in higher education and that has had knock-on effect, considerable knock-on effects for participation in higher education, particularly among mature students. I believe that the uh, recruitment um, application rate for mature students has fallen by around 11.4% this year. So there's um, there's some big disadvantages, if you like, for for us as an institution which wants to support um, mature students and and part-time learners. Um, And it's those students that I think um, also have... um, particular needs and um, support needs and um, development needs in terms of employability. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the social um, mobility report, not the one that Milburn has just produced, but the one about social mobility in the professions, um, where he talked about um, the very limited opportunities for mature students, and particularly for mature students from disadvantaged backgrounds. And he was, um, I think in his last report, which was earlier this year, he was expressing his disappointment for the very, very small distance that we've been able to travel in terms of... Um, enhancing opportunities for mature learners in employment, in employability terms. So I think it's really, really critical, particularly in the light of his latest report on social mobility, and um, that we address the um, employability issue head on and really get to grips and do more work than has been done already. Um, yesterday, the university launched its new, the Open University launched its new Widening Access and Success Strategy, And um, I'm sure that uh, John will be able to find some copies of that later in the day if people want to have a look at it, Um, but please have a look at it online. Um, And employability is one area which is going to be addressed in every area of the the strategy because it's in in our our curriculum strategy, if you like, it's in our learning and teaching strategy, it's also in our widening access to success strategy through the various um, areas of focus that we're adopting. So... And that's why this topic is very, very important to us. And I'm very, very pleased to see that, um, that we're holding this, hosting this seminar today. Um, I'm afraid that I do have to dash off um, and to, <laughs> to try and talk sensibly to some more people. Um, but before I go, I, I would like to um, introduce Dr. Erica Morris, who is the, um, the Higher Education Academy Lead for Assessment and Feedback and the here. And um, as, I, as I understand, and I think we didn't quite overlap, but Erica used to work for the Open University. She was um, lead instructional designer at one point. Um, she's worked as a research fellow in our Institute for Education Technology, and she's published papers in the areas of student learning, um, statistical education, educational technology. Um, so she's a, she's a friend of the Open University. I'm also very impressed to see that she's Prince 2.0 qualified <laughs> so, uh, so well done there Erica and, um, and I'm really glad to see you here because I think it's very important that we do work closely with the academy and we keep our links and it's great that you're an open university person so you understand us where we're coming from and how we fit so I'm going to hand you over to Erica I hope you have a really great day um, and I look forward to hearing about it later on thank you very much thanks oh.
1: very much. Can everyone hear me okay? Yeah? Okay. Um, yeah, my name's Erica Morris. I'm an academic lead for the Higher Education Academy. Um, assessment and feedback, in it, and the here are my area, areas, the Higher Education Achievement Report. Last academic year, I also um, led on employability. We also now have a new... Um, academic lead for employability called Maureen Tibby which is worth letting you know about I just wanted to give you just talk for about 10 minutes just to give you a bit of a feel about what the HEA does and I know some of you will be very aware of what the Higher Education Academy does but it's good to just um, given that there were changes over the last a couple of years ago, it's, it's good to let you know about its, its structure and, and its priorities. Um, and I also just want to highlight some of the work we do and, in particular, some of the funding opportunities available that you might be interested in. I'm around all day as well, so I, I very much look, for, it's very nice to be back. and I still live in Milton Keynes so the Higher Education Academy um, it champions um, excellence in learning and teaching in higher education so we work to raise the status of teaching um, and also a body of knowledge and expertise relating to teaching and learning and we do this through working with a range of partners and communities and networks um, to share good practice and to raise the status of teaching and learning in higher education in terms of our structure, we are organised in, in terms of institutional strategy and change, teacher excellence and academic practice, and we often think about um, our work in terms of support and services. So, under those three areas, we run a range of services. So, for example, under Institutional Strategy and Change, which is where I sit, we, we run, we have the thematic workshops and seminar series, such as which this is part of. We run change programmes. Um, and under Teacher Excellence, of course, we um, promote the use of the UK PSF, the Professional Standards Framework. And um, accreditation services for universities and colleges. In terms of academic practice, this is very important. It's about, of course, um, raising the awareness um, and knowledge about teaching and learning in particular discipline areas. So we have a range of discipline leads that work with their communities and their networks um, on teaching and learning matters. And that comes under academic practice. We have, therefore, four discipline clusters at the HEA. Arts and Humanities, Health and Social Care, Social Sciences and STEM. And, um, as I was saying, within those discipline clusters, we have discipline leads. We have 28 discipline leads working across our education. Importantly, as well, as well as supporting disciplines in teaching and learning, we also have a number of thematic priorities, which are very important to giving a pattern to our work and an an emphasis in particular areas. So um, one of our thematic areas is assessment and feedback. Another one is is graduate employability. And we also have internationalisation and flexible learning. And these are very important as well in that they help us focus um, funding opportunities and, and the work that we do, which I'll say a little bit more about. So one of our services, as I was saying, is the workshop and seminar series, the thematic workshop and seminar series. And this academic year, we're focusing on three areas, employability, hence we're here today, flexible learning and also internationalisation. And um, they're important, of course, because they're about promoting research and evidence that is informed departmental, often at the subject level, but also institutional policy and practice. And the HEA funds these seminars, but of course they're they're hosted by the institution and it gives them opportunities to share their work with a range of people across the higher education community. We also run a range of discipline-focused seminars um, across the academic year, and if you want further information, do go to the website about those. In terms of um, the theme of employability, the HEA's work has been um, is particularly important, of course, particularly with regard to the current climate at the moment, and we have a range of aims. But importantly, we we work to enhance institutions' in employability strategies, um, and particularly work on graduate employability, not only at the um, discipline level, but across, across disciplines as well. And it's also worth mentioning that we develop resources and run events that relate to developing practitioners' practice. And I would like to highlight, of course, the publication Pedagogy for Employability, which rolls off my tongue now. Pedagogy is always a funny word. And, and that's available on our website, and Anne Pegg and colleagues produce that working with the Higher Education Academy. We also, last academic year, um, promoted a range of teaching development grants, uh, which I'll say a little bit more about, and um, we have a number running in the area of employability. Um, so that if you, there's more information on those particular projects on our website. On the topic of teaching development grants, it's important that these are about supporting innovation in teaching and learning. Um, And we fund the the teaching development grants scheme has three schemes as such, or three levels. Individual projects, um, which are often uh, led by a, a lecturer in the field. Departmental projects, which often relate to subject area working at the discipline level. And also collaborative schemes, which are projects... Um, often with faculties working with each other across an institution or indeed different institutions working together. Um, (coughs) It's very important in thinking about these grants and when applications are put through to these grants that they need to build on existing practice and existing work, but also demonstrate innovation in particular areas because what's important particularly from our perspective of course is that the impact of those projects is felt beyond the the institution that runs the the project and that's of course very important now this academic year the themes for the teaching development grants are assessment of feedback and flexible learning but there is also an open theme as well and we have the collaborative call for that teaching development grant scheme Opens in January and closes in February. So, you're interested in applying for funds. Collaborative um, schemes usually projects of up to about sixty thousand. I've never done that before. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Just for uh, just it's worth knowing about some other funding opportunities that you might be interested in. Um, Staffing universities have comply for travel fund to attend events in the UK, such as conferences to enhance their professional development. Um, and there's details of that under our funding section of the website. We also have an international scholarship scheme for um, individuals to go abroad and visit um, a university abroad uh, to, to, again, enhance their professional development. And we also support and fund around five PhD Um, studentships in higher education as well. In terms of events, we run a range of events. These might be workshops in particular areas, um, but also we have our annual conference, which is in July. Um, The call for contributions for that will open in mid-November. And as I said, we have a workshop and seminar series with workshops and seminars across the UK that are free for people to go to. Okay, so you're, if you're interested in following up, like I said, I'm around today, um, but our website's um, got a lot of details about events and resources and funding. There is a mailing list you can sign up to on the website, to my academy, so you can receive updates, and of course, if you have specific queries related to employability, we have Employability Mailbox, so do feel you can drop us a line. Okay, so I'd like to hand over um, to Anne. Introduce the yeah. seminar.
2: Thanks very much, Erica. I'm sure people would like to talk to you about money later on. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, welcome everybody. I think we're going to kick off the day with Martha, who's kindly come out from Scotland because being the OU, we're across a number of nations and we're able to really usefully look at some of the work that's going on in other nations that's a little bit different to ha- perhaps the English. Um, scenario that we've got. So Martha's going to talk to us about the internships project in Scotland. Thank you Martha. And um, I think that she's going to talk for about 20 minutes and then there'll be time for questions. But Martha's let me know that she's very happy for you if you have a burning question or something that you think might just escape from you, for you to ask her a question as she goes and John is going to capture questions from anybody who is online in order that he'll, he'll just give us away at, in the 20-minute slot if there's a question from somebody online who wants
3: to email in. Okay, thank you, Martha. Okay, thanks. Yeah. I'm Martha from the Open University in Scotland where I'm the, one of the learning and teaching coordinators. For the last couple of years I've also been uh, one of the directors of Third Sector Internship Scotland which is a... Uh, program which runs across all Scottish universities. It's open to all, all university students in Scotland uh, offering paid internships uh, in charities, voluntary organisations, social enterprises um, across the country. So I'll talk a little bit more about, about the pro- the, that particular project and some of the learning from that. My presentation is covering three broad themes. I'm going to touch a little bit on the broad political and policy debates but I think we're all fairly familiar with those I won't labour that point uh, too much and then I've, I'd like to talk a little bit about the practicalities of, of setting up the scheme and, and how we've made it work as a collaborative multi-institutional programme, uh, particularly working with small and micro uh, organisations and employers. Um, and the, you might want to pick up some of the practical stuff around that later on, but I'll touch on the broad outline of that. And then I want to focus particularly on what we're learning about the, the spectrum of employability needs of the students that, that, we're, that are coming to us and focusing specifically on, on mature students. But yeah, as Lan says, do interrupt if there's anything that you'd like clarification about or if you want to just pick up on any points as, as we go through. Is, yeah, so yes, the starting points around those a popular political and pedagogic debates will be familiar to, to many of you. All of you, I would hope. <laughs> um, we've had, there's a well-rehearsed discussions around graduate um, unemployment being particularly high at the current climate. And that often gets conflated with youth unemployment. And I think there is a need to disaggregate and, and to think a little bit more critically about what we mean by uh, when we talk about graduate unemployment and youth unemployment. And those, those debates do tend to get conflated. And I think there's perhaps a need to, to disaggregate that to some extent. We're also seeing, we're familiar with the reports that work placements and internships are often key to employment and employability, um, in a positive way, for example through the Wilson report, but also in negative ways. and will be the the raft of headlines that there's been over in recent years about um, internships and work placement opportunities uh, being given to tennis club chums and and even being auctioned off um, to the highest bidder um, and and issues around fairness and access, uh, fairness of access to opportunities that come from that. We've also seen in recent, uh, in the last couple of years, emerging discussions about whether internships and work placements should be paid or, or not. And the, the, the discussions at the minute seem to be reaching a, a bit of a tipping point about whether people should be, pay, be paid for their internships or not. So um, the work of Intern Aware and, and other organisations um, really raising the profile about how people are having to work often full time, often for extended periods of time for organisations and getting no financial reward for that um, and that's increasingly being seen, being challenged um, and I think that, that we're going to uh, going to see increasing concern about the nature of work placements and the nature of internships and, and, and how we deliver something that's meaningful and fair. One of the... Issues which I wanted to flag, but not perhaps delve too deeply into um, in this initial presentation here, is the question which comes up, but what is an internship? It's a label that gets banded around at the moment and it's being applied to a whole host of different um, experiences that, that people are engaging with, whether that might be within um, a legal firm working um, as some form of an apprentice type um, role uh, for, uh, for often unpaid, or whether it's uh, in, in for, for MPs or so on, or whether it's something that's a more of a programmatic approach that is actually a more formalised training uh, position. So the very practical and legal definitions are somewhat blu- blurry at the moment, and that with that comes a lot of, of problems around the le- legal positions and the pay- payment issues. But I think we're, one of my colleagues has been working a lot of, on issues around the legality and there does seem to be case law emerging that it's not about the label or the title that you place on something. Just calling it an internship doesn't mean you can um, not pay someone to do a piece of work uh, but, but rather the type of work is being looked at and I think that's something we need to, to bear in mind as we think about how we might apply things in, in the HE context. Um, so. Uh, in terms of the legal position, but whether someone is a volunteer or a worker uh, or employee. So I think the recent cases where back pay has been awarded in interns is something that we need to be conscious of as we as we think about these issues. And we park that to one side for the time being. So parallel to those popular and and political debates, we've ha- had conversation um, conversations within the HE sector about these these issues and. So HE concerns about how to support students to engage with the changing uh, world of work and how to enhance their employability. So, of course, these these debates will be familiar to you, about enhancing graduate attributes, about employability uh, development, skills development, skills utilisation, and so on. The emergence of skills awards um, and greater focus on work-related and work-based learning uh, emerging across the sectors uh, across the UK in slightly different guises. But throughout all of this, there's a real sense that a degree is not enough. We need to be thinking about what else we can we can provide for our students around that. More specifically, we're seeing a greater focus on internships and placements with the Wilson Report in England, of course, um, and the Aspiration that undergraduates um, should be given the opportunity, all undergraduates should be given the opportunity to engage in university approved internships. Um, And in Scotland, we've had a a programme over the last uh, four to five years around learning to work. And the second tranche of that, learning to work too, imaginatively named, uh, was focused particularly on work placements um, and looked at a raft of ways in which we could develop internships and work placements through, the higher ed- through university um, engagement with employers. But within this, we have to think about what constitutes a meaningful internship or work placement experience. Is it something they want to embed in study? Um, is it something that is separate from study and has an application process? Or is it something that will match students um, to, to particular posts? Does it matter if it's volunteering? What does, what does the work experience of volunteering offer? Or do we want to be thinking about paid placements? And what's the content of the work that people are doing? I think we need to unpack a little bit more about what we're expecting students to do and what constitutes something that is meaningful to them in their particular study and work context. And within that, we need to really begin to disentangle the spectrum of employability needs. It's not that one is better than another, but what is meaningful at a particular point in any any given student's career or study trajectory. And we'll begin to unpack that a little bit further as we uh, move on to look at the third sector programme. So that was a bit of a whirlwind through the the, the debates, but I I guess they're they're very familiar to, to most of you. What I wanted to focus on now was a particular case study from the third sector internships programme this emerged from conversations that we'd been having um, 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 across the Employability Coordinators Network in Scotland um, about the resource implications of placements and, and so on and how it just was so, individual institutions were finding it so difficult to develop placement programmes, and the, the, the resource in, in actually setting those up and engaging with employers, engaging with students, and coming up with something that was of any scale. You could do it on a, on a small, small basis, but to do it on any scale was very resource intensive. And in parallel, we were having conversations with colleagues from Scottish Council for Voluntary Organisations, and their interest was in promoting the third sector as a clear destination of choice for, for students and graduates so the two things came together and, uh, to, to develop this programme. Um, as I say, it's a collaboration between Scottish universities and the third sector. Um, so it's run by the Open University in Scotland, Queen Margaret University and Scottish Council for Voluntary Organisations as the core group. Um, we've got a steering group, which uh, covers a far larger number of universities in Scotland, the University of Aberdeen, Dundee, University of the West of Scotland, Stirling University, um, and Glasgow Caledonian University. So we have, uh, and the programme is open to students at every university in Scotland, uh, whatever level they're at, whether that's their, their undergraduate or postgraduate, anyone can apply. To date, we've had advertised 163. We started the programme started um, in 2011, where our first internships were advertised. And to date, we've had 163 internships advertised. We've had applications, uh, 3,600 applications, for those 163 posts, and we've conducted interviews with 600, over 600 um, students and we've given individual feedback to all of those 600 candidates. 90% of the organisations we work with are small and uh, medium enterprises and 50, over 50% of those are micro organisations with less than 10 staff. So there's particular issues about engaging those types of employers which we might want to pick up and explore um, as we go, go forward. There's three strands to the work that, that we do. Um, the third sector engagement strategy uh, strand is focus on how do we even work with, to begin to work with third sector organisations um, to encourage them and give them the confidence to want to host a student. I think there's an assumption that um, you just go out and you can, put, you can play students with employers. We're working very, making sure we've got a strong employer engagement strand to make sure that employers are, confident enough to take on a student and able to to give them to give and, and they have the, the capacity to give the student a meaningful experience as well as making sure they get the piece of work done that they really wanted to get done so we, ha- ha- we realized quite early on that we had to offer a comprehensive support package for employers as well as for students on the higher education side we Consciously trying to ensure that these are these opportunities are open on a fair basis. We have an open recruitment process, application form and interviews. Um, consciously trying to make sure they're located across the country so people have opportunities uh, wherever they might be located at, at university or living. And making sure we have links across the sector with career services and with um, academic staff across across Scottish University to make sure that the messages getting out and the support networks are as strong as they can be. We've also got a strong strand around learning and research in this. Um, what we have access to with this is 3500 application forms to really begin to see how our students across the sector are presenting themselves to employers. When you go to a, careers in, a mock interview or whatever at, at a career service, it's just that, it's a mock interview. But we have the opportunity with this, through this project to look at how, in a real world context, students are actually presenting themselves and how they're articulating their skills and experience to, to employers. And we get to see them in an interview. And so I think we've got a richness and a depth of data, which I think is quite valuable and something that we want to make sure we capitalise on and share the learning from that as widely as we can. So quick overview. um, The placements that we offer are part-time and full-time. So the batch that we've just had, we've just closed a batch of uh, 40-odd jobs just shut last week. And they were all part-time places, which students were able to do alongside their study over the course of the next six months or longer, depending on, on the particular project. There are, and that flexibility is important not just for students, but also for the types of employers we're working with. To have someone in full-time is not necessarily the best thing. If you're a tiny organisation with maybe two members of staff, to have someone else coming in full-time, they wouldn't have the capacity to support them. The flexibility for, for students is, is clear. It can fit around their studies and can fit around um, the rest of their lives as well. We offer a real-life application process with guidance and feedback um, to try and emphasize that this isn't just a job creation scheme, but it's about enhancing employability more broadly. Um, having that support and having those links crit- critically to career services through that The internships are offered alongside study but they're not necessarily linked directly to their studies. Um, Some students are able to use them as part of their studies but we're not integrating them um, specifically with any particular course. We've seen, as you can tell from the numbers, high demand from employers and high demand from students. A key thing for us though is we need to consider the support for the mass of students. First, then the mass of students who apply and don't get anything at the end three thousand five hundred applying, only one hundred and sixty three actually getting posts. So, what are we doing? What's the value added? Where's the employability enhancement that we're providing for for the people who are applying and not being successful? So, here the careers service is really critical, and our links with them are, are, are vital. Um, for example, we had yeah, sorry. Can you explain what you mean
2: by high demand employers?
3: Yeah, they, from employers, um, if they would like to host one an intern, they apply to to be to be a host a host employer, and um, so they we've had we've had considerable interest uh, from from employers. So more than we've been able to meet in terms of both our finances and our capacity. So we've we've had we've got a bank of employers. We've already got um, places lined up for the next. Next year, so yeah, we've had a strong, strong interest from in the employers. I think because they get a piece of work done that they wouldn't otherwise yeah. be able to to deliver is, is a particular pull factor for them. The so yeah, in terms of considering the support for the mass, we're making it. We we see quite a lot of repeat applicants, and I think that with them in particular, we're able to build to. Sort of, build on the feedback we've provided them previously, but also to link them up with their careers advisors. Um, we had one student who was an Open University student who applied um, several times for, for positions and was there or thereabouts every time. and was getting interviewed but just not getting that next step. And so she worked very, very closely with her careers advisor about, you know, her interview technique, her application format. And just to keep her going, to get that resilience, to just keep at it, you know, you're getting close, learn from the experience. Um, and she ultimately did get a position and has just very recently completed it and we got an email conveniently yesterday while I was coming down the train saying that she had now been offered a job with the employer that she had been working with, So, it, but that issue of resilience and how we can help support students to be resilient and apply it is very critical and we also want to think about the mass of people who are not applying as well, I think that's something which we'll come onto with the stats as well, but particularly for mature students who to have the confidence or even to recognise that these opportunities might be for you is quite a big hurdle to get around So to raise aspirations that you might even want to apply for this is something that we need to be conscious of uh, when we're thinking about about access and um, the opportunities that we present So what do the students do? They're located across the country, that's just a few of the examples um, and you'll see in the report that's on the table there some more of the case studies from that. So the locations are diverse, the types of work people do are incredibly diverse as well. We're seeing clusters of things coming up around social media, around research and evaluation work, around funding and marketing and about web development that come up again and again. We also see some very, very specific things coming up, depending on the nature of the third sector, so diverse, we're always going to come up with things which are very, very specific. And, these actually to, and this is really quite interesting in terms of the applications that we get for different posts. So we've seen some really interesting work around archiving for the Workers' Education Association, for the Waterways Trust, archiving some of their artefacts. Um, video production, food technology um, and even one canny organisation who decided to use their intern to develop their own internship scheme so that was a a useful use of their resources the impact um, has been we're in the middle of the project so in terms of um, ultimate impact we're kind of it's ongoing monitoring of it, but we're seeing third sector organisations completing projects otherwise they just wouldn't have been able to do. They talk a lot about having fresh ideas and new skills. Occasionally in the rhetoric it gets equated with fresh skills from young students coming through, But uh, and that's something we're, we're very conscious of, that the rhetoric of, of fresh often being equated with youth. Um, we're seeing internships as being quite distinct from volunteering both from the employer side and from the student side, they don't want, students don't want just, just, in inverted commas, to to volunteer, they're seeing the internship as as, uh, something qualitatively different that they can uh, put on their CV and it will be seen as something that's paid and something that has a different currency than the volunteering what they've done. From the third sector organisation side, they're also seeing the, the, a very clear distinction between the fantastic work that their volunteers do and the very distinct role that the interns can play. Um, so what can, you, what can you expect from a paid employee versus volunteering? And I think that has issues when we talk about the spectrum of employability needs and where, where our students might want to, to situate uh, the, advan- the opportunities that students might want to take volunteering is f- absolutely critical in certain t- to develop certain skills but what does a paid internship offer we're seeing students are gaining work experience they're um, getting recruitment experience and ultimately many of them are getting jobs from this I think we're also learning a lot from this project and I think that um, in terms of how we collaborate with colleagues from other institu- from other universities, but also with employers. And we're also developing a model which I think will, is replicable in other sectors. We've developed it in the third sector, but there's interest in replicating this in other sectors as well. So I wanted to turn now to the, the rhetoric, uh, to the specific issues around mature students and and internships and we particularly see this rhetoric of bright young things being um, talked about in relation to internships and a lot of the popular debate and the the linking up of youth employment and internships emphasises this focus but I think what we want to, to explore here is how internships are not just for young students, we're seeing a diversity of applicants with a range of motives and a range of needs And while we could, we want to focus on mature students, I think that diversity of needs has to be emphasised not just for the mature students, but for all students. But there are particular characteristics of the mature students that are applying and particular patterns of success. So, do mature students even want internships? Well, what we're finding is we thought, well... If people have already been in work, have had, have, have um, maybe currently in work, or have been in work, do they actually even want internships? What we're finding is 20% of our applications are from students who are over 25. This includes postgraduates, um, and it's particularly skewed to, and we see particularly skewing to international postgraduates who are applying. But if we disaggregate that a little bit further, if we just focus on the UK undergraduate students, 9% of applications are from mature students. Uh, again referring to them as, as being over 25s. We do see some demographic variance between who, who's applying from the over 25s and the under 25s. The gender balance is slightly different uh, between between the, the age groups. We see across the board more women than men are applying. I think it's perhaps the nature of the sector, the nature of the work uh, and the makeup of uh, the HE population. But the we're, so we're seeing about a 60-40 split um, in terms of gender applications across the board. It's slightly uh, we have slightly more men than, uh, applying from the over twenty five. So it's, it's up to about um, just under forty percent of uh, for, for men, of, of applicants are men. And socioeconomic background, uh, we see a slight skewing towards uh, the lower uh, end of the. Scottish students' index of multiple multiple deprivation more from the lower quintiles. I'll show you some stats about that in a a minute. What's also interesting is that we're seeing some variance in students' perceptions of their skills uh, and their success rates. We do a skills audit as part of the um, application form process and we see that the older students have a greater sense of Confidence in their skills than the younger students. This is a self-report about perceptions of skills, rather than any objective test. But I think it's something which is we want to kind of hold that as we as we think about things in terms of they perceiving themselves as having having far, having greater confidence in their skills than some of the younger students, um, and that seems to have. We haven't done enough of the correlation of of the results yet, but there's also a a parallel trend to some of the the, um, application forms from mature students being perhaps less reflective and perhaps less um, integrated than some from the younger students, particularly in terms of integrating study and work and life. Um, The younger students are there is more, perhaps more adept at that than some of the mature, the older students are, are slightly more separated out and talk about their, their work or talk about their study. And integrating the two in an application form seems uh, is it in some cases more challenging. I'm talking about very broad levels here because there, there's a great diversity uh, amongst the mature students and amongst the younger students, of course. But we can come back to, to delve into that a bit more in detail. This is the pattern of application shortlisting, and interns for the entire population, and we 're seeing there that, um, that the younger students are as light like, um, the younger students are less likely to be shortlisted uh, and, and appointed uh, if we were to just break this down by. UK nationals only you see a slightly different picture particularly if you look at the older students and as I was saying there's a slight skewing so we go back to the previous one it's almost a flat line there but if we take out the international students we are seeing that UK nationals only the older students are actually doing pretty well in terms of being appointed relative to the number who are applying. And I think that says there's a whole, a whole host of other discussions about international students, which I'm going to leave to one side for the purposes of today. I'll skip past a few of these. The stats are here. If, if anyone's interested in picking up a bit more on, on the stats, then you're um, very welcome to, to come back to these discussions. The, one thing that's maybe worth highlighting is the, the demographic data, which it's, it's not perfect data because it's based on students, um, the address that they apply from. But what we're seeing is we're, more of the mature students are from this lower end of the spectrum in terms of um, the index of multiple deprivation. Um, I think the story behind this, I think it, is perhaps more interesting than the stats itself. What we're seeing, this idea of, we're see, this is particularly... We're finding students from the West of Scotland um, fit into that category, and what we're seeing is an incredibly active career service, particularly around the University of West of Scotland,' so a particularly active career service in terms of raising students' aspirations to even apply for things. so they do a fantastic job in, in encouraging people to apply. So we think some of that pattern might be down to active, active encouragement to, to apply for, for, um, for positions. So why do students want internships? Well, mature students want internships. Very similar patterns to all students really. They want paid work, as distinct from yeah, from from other forms of work. They're interested in career change um, towards a graduate career, as opposed to um, towards a graduate career, as opposed to the work that they might currently be doing. Uh, so one, one of our one of our interns had been previously working in ASDA, and he continued work he was and he was studying. At the same time, and so he was using this internship to help him move, and his study at the same time to help him move towards the career that he actually wanted to be to be doing uh, so we 're seeing this towards a graduate a shift in direction, maybe working in the civil service want to work in the third sector this is helping uh, they 're hoping that this will give them that sense of um, moving on and students returning to the labor market after a break and particularly the restoration confidence experience, gaining the networks and gaining the skills. So here's just a few of the quotes on why people have applied. Um, on paper I might look like someone who doesn't need an internship, but there's a lot for me to learn in this role. I want to raise my market appeal with employers. And that um, idea that it's a competitive labour market, that you need something else beyond study, comes up again and again here again, I worked for the same organisation for a long period of time before returning to university and so I'm keen to experience working for other charitable organisations to broaden my range. So it's again very much linked up with needing something more than just study. I think the student here was talking much more about the confidence about um, and seeing internships as something distinct. They weren't weren't ready to make that leap into having a job full time um, and Applying for a, a, a formal position, but they thought applying for an internship would help boost and give the boost their confidence, give them a more supportive uh, step back into the world of work. I wanted to finish just with a couple of case studies, just to give you a bit more of a flavour of. We've got the numbers, we've got the broad pictures. This is Gillian. She worked. She was um, took an internship at New Caledonian Woodland. She was. Um, had, had had a career break, was looking after her family, and decided she needed a new challenge. And she uh, did a, a degree at the Open University, and got very interested in environmental work. Decided to carry on and do a master's program, but she wanted was trying to find a way into um, into into a particular career in the environment sector, but wasn't very confident. And so she found the internship a real advan- a really fantastic opportunity for her to get that experience um, alongside, it was part-time, it was alongside her caring responsibilities, alongside finishing off her master's degree and she was able to get that work experience and for her it was that the confidence of getting back into the world of work after a break was absolutely vital and for her getting and being able to have an employer's reference, a current employer's reference after that career break was absolutely one of her motivating factors. In contrast, uh, Pete went to work at Community Energy Scotland and did some evaluation and research work for them. And his primary short term motivation was he wanted some real world experience to supplement his studies. He was doing, again, he was an OU student and he was doing uh, a programme that needed him to reflect on his work. Um, and it, the work that he was doing was, wasn't relevant to the degree he was doing. So his initial motivation was to get. Um, real world experience that he could apply to his studies subsequently he and, and ultimately um, he wanted to, to go and move in, into the, energy, the um, environment sector as well again, it started off his interest in study he 's gone on and um, it 's very interesting that he was working full time and he was able to negotiate with his employers uh, and his internship was full time so he negotiated with his employer to take ten weeks on paid leave so he could go and do this internship. Quite an unusual case, but it was one which, which paid off for him because he ultimately then got a job with Community Energy Scotland at the end of it. So finally, just that's, I've touched on a whole host of things and you might want to pick up on, on specific elements of it. But the emerging themes, clearly we want to move beyond this assumption that internships are for bright young things. They are really critical and useful in terms of career change and returning to work. And matricians shouldn't be put off from applying for these. They have many advantages, as we're seeing, that they have experience, skills, and and a confidence in those skills that employers recognise and employers are are valuing. But we do begin to see some particular challenges. We need to raise the aspirations for students that they can actually apply for these. We need to consider issues about mobility. How far are you prepared to travel for a position? And when you're applying for posts, how are able are you to integrate study and work and life experience? So I think within this, we have to see that not nece- that um, we don't want to necessarily single out mature students, but we need to recognise the diversity of experience and, and needs of students and look beyond this linear model of employability of uh, university study, some sort of internship work placement and into your graduate career but to think much more flexibly about interweaving of study and work lives and how we, can, how we can make work placements and internships actually work for the diversity of the student body, uh, including mature students. I've run over more than I wanted to, but I'm um, happy to take questions on or points that you might want me to extend on uh, across that broad reach of staff. Yeah.
4: Um, could you tell me, or did you capture how many of these internships turn into sustain your plan? Yeah, a yeah um,
3: kind of your percentage, because we're just doing the follow-up. So we do a follow-up, because um, so a lot of them are still running, because okay. they're part-time. Um, a lot of the students are Still, students, because it's for students and not for graduates. These mm-hmm. are for encore students. Um, but what we're seeing is for, um, that the vast majority are have sustained contact with the employer that they're working with. A lot of them are leading to jobs, whether that's further consultancy work or further um, short term contracts. We're seeing a number getting into full-time, permanent employment with the people they were working with. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I can't get. I'm afraid I can't give you a specific figure at the minute, But the trend is towards towards employment, um, and so with. Um, uh, with Pete, he got full time employment. Interestingly, with Gillian, she's now a trustee of the charity. So, the, the forms of contact that people have sustained are, are, are diverse, but uh, the, the trend is definitely towards either employment with that employer or elsewhere in the sector. Okay. Yeah. We have an online
2: question and then Claire and then Bandra, I think. I Do you want to... So, this is a
5: question from uh, Kevin Coyne. Um, from yeah, he says, um, how can non-academic employability professionals better engage the third sector? Um, and what do you feel are the benefits of third sector engagement on graduate employability?
3: Um, I think with the benefits, take the benefits first. I think the third sector is incredibly diverse, and I think in terms of um, offering opportunities that would engage the interests and... Um, enthusiasm of a diverse range of students. The third sector is, uh, is a fantastic sector to be working with because it's, it's very dynamic and very diverse. So, the, And I think also the nature of the sector, and uh, particularly the fact that we're talking a lot of very small organisations, the impact that you can have is dramatic. And I think one of the strong messages we're getting is that is how... How meaningful and how valuable the experience is because people, because students are coming in and seeing that they can make a real difference in a very short space of time, um, not just for an employer, but for a community or to, to the beneficiaries of that organization. So, the takeaway for, this, for the students is massive, and the benefits to the student, to the organization, is huge as well. So, I think that the, the benefits is that you can see. A, an impact that you have delivered, uh, but also that you, it's an incredibly diverse sector that you can um, that you can find opportunities in a whole host of different skills areas, which is fantastic in terms of how to engage with them, it's, I think the key issue is that because these are very small a lot of this sector is very small organizations, so it's maybe to think about how you engage in a collective way. Um, perhaps through uh, umbrella organisations that we're, we're fortunate we're working with Scottish Council for Voluntary Organisations. But there's umbrella bodies at, at different levels, at local level, through um, volunteer centres that have links out to um, voluntary organisations. So to, I think working with um, umbrella bodies is a, is a way of, of reaching some of the smaller organisations that you might not immediately think of. Okay.
2: Yeah. Uh, Martha, two two parts. Yeah. Part A is um, given. You had a lot of in, interest from employers, and mm-hmm. you've obviously still got people mm-hmm. waiting for interns. What criteria did you apply to decide which employers mm-hmm. you would engage with initially and yeah. get the interns? And the part B is what was actually who was involved in the selection process for the interns? The that mm-hmm.
3: process for for the employers, there's an expression of interest form that goes out to everyone. It's, on, it's online and if anyone wants to have a look at it, it's there. Um, and we, we exclude people who already have internship schemes because we want to... This is new opportunities about promoting the, across the sector. Um, but then within, it, within that, it's about making sure that there's, strong, there's sufficient support for the internship. So our, the job descriptions that we, de- we ask people to develop aren't just about what you want the student to deliver for you, but what will you deliver to the student in terms of support and development needs. Um, so when it gets to the point where we're having to juggle and say, well, actually, we have to, we can't have everybody, we're looking at the, um, the support that they can offer. But I think we're also very focused on making sure that in each batch... That we're advertising, we have a a geographic spread so that there is opportunities and a a spread of skills. We don't want to advertise 25 social media strategies in Edinburgh, Um, so we're we're trying to get that diversity of skills and so on. But there's, we've also got the formal criteria that are all up on on the website as well, so we get as transparent as we can. The interns, um, what I think was I didn't emphasise is that the organisation is the employer of the intern. So, the ultimate decision about, so the contracts are not with us, the contracts are with the organization the host organization, so they have the ultimate say in whether they appoint someone or not. but we sense that so, so there 's on a typical interview panel will be a couple of people from the organization, uh, plus someone from the third sector of Scotland team. so we go out and make sure because that the value added we provide is the feedback and support. Um, because the nature of the organisations we're working with, that recruitment process is really quite challenging for a very small organisation that might not have recruited before, they don't have the people and time and, time and money resources for that. So that support from us as, a, as an intermediary is, is absolutely critical. And we can also provide the broader employability support and feedback. So it's, it's a bit of a double or triple act when we do the interviews.
2: Very, very quickly, Brenda, just ask a question. Well, sorry, it's a
4: very uh, quick um, question, maybe. And I hate to raise the issue of money, yes. but I would be fascinated to know about sustainability of this sort of scheme. I see it's funded by the Scottish yeah. Funding yeah. Council. I know in the English side, HEPI did fund an internship scheme. But there was an evaluation of it, which I don't have it to hand. I just wonder... what extent there are similarities in the scheme you're trying to run I mean I know Scotland is always kind of different and is able to do things collaboratively whereas in England maybe we're so far into competition Mm -hmm. it's you know there there are different contexts there but I would just be interested in your views on how Mm -hmm. you would want this to continue beyond the specific funding that you've got
3: yeah, I think it's, I mean, that's the absolutely critical, of course. I think we're, we're kind of we're discussing things with the Funding Council at the minute. Um, I think what we, there's two sides to that. There's the commitment from the higher education sector and how we sustain that. And I think the, alongside, there's, we're working on this, but there's also, on the third sector, there's a, a sister project working in the IT sector, which is a similar basis across across all universities. And I think as a model, that seems to be quite effective and there is support and buy-in from across the sector. Um, And I suppose the issue of HE funding is how the Funding Council want to work in terms of national outcomes as opposed to institutional outcomes. Um, And that's something which is an ongoing and very live discussion at the minute. So do we want to continue to support (coughs) initiatives that support the sector as a whole? The other side of the equation is employer buy-in to this. and how. So this is the the bit I didn't mention is that for employers, uh, we pay for the first internship salary because I think with the third sector it's just to support the um, to support the idea of internships in the sector. Second internships are 50% and the third are 25%. What we're seeing is actually we we thought it was just going to dissipate, and we thought that actually it's all just employers only want it because we're offering money and free 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 a free employee for a certain period of time. But what we're getting very clear messages is it's actually more than that. That there's it's a new way of working and engaging that they're very supportive of, and we see that by the the, the organisations that are. Setting up, you've got the the stroke association looking at setting up their own internship scheme which they'll be funding, and people looking for alternative models, ways of funding things. So, while it probably we're hopeful, and the trajectory is towards greater um organizational input and financial input, so we're very hopeful that that's going to be um sustained. The level of that, how that's sustained, is is very much dependent on the third sector organizations' capacity to to fund that, but I think the people are beginning to look ahead and build it into their strategies how will we fund an intern in, if not immediately, then next year how will we put aside X amount of money to, to fund an intern so I, I, I've, we're beginning to see more of a cultural shift than we perhaps first anticipated and are genuinely more upbeat than we thought we would be at this stage in the project about how we'll sustain it um, as we go forward so yeah Thank you
2: very much, Martha. That was really interesting. I'm people can see the report and also talk to Martha at lunchtime. Thank you. Okay, you may want to just shuffle around a bit. While I'm going to <laughs>
5: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, I think we'll spread just a that, yeah. that's do If I go there, you can stay here. Yeah. Which is the <laughs> button that I press to move on? John okay. only knows about and right, and the right, is to move on to the next one. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs>
2: do with work-based learning and this is a project uh, research project that's been taken by a group of people. Um, so Roger, Tyrrell and Stephen are going to, I think, swap around in talking yeah. about it. And I understand that they would prefer questions to come in the, in, in the latter half, is that correct? That would be fine, yes. yes. So, so again, some, some information and then some, uh, some question sessions.
5: So, we're talking today about a small research project that we did, and we titled it Real Lives Imagined Futures, which I think gives important clues about what we were trying to do with this research project. The Real Lives bit suggests that we're trying to capture the texture, if you like, of students' lives, to look beyond their identity as a student and beyond viewing them through the lens of the teachers and the institutions where we might be interested in their performance over the course and the outcomes beyond the course in terms of employment and so on. So we're trying to capture their lives as more socially embedded um, and enabling us to ma- and them to make connections between the personal and the social aspects of their lives. The other aspect of it is the imagined futures. So we're interested in viewing students in terms of their trajectories, their career trajectories, but also how they understand their life trajectories. So we're trying to get a picture, a a richer picture, of who these people are, their motivations for study, how they came to the institution, how they came to this particular professional qualification, and how they see themselves negotiating um, the movement through a career in this particular field. I need to say something about the professional field we're dealing with here. That the qualification we're working on is one that leads to professional qualification as a youth worker. Youth work <coughs> could be described as one of those emergent practice based disciplines where the emphasis tends to be on disciplinary diversity and an emphasis on skills development in many cases. And it's been described by um, somebody working in this field as an ambiguous set of practices pushed in different directions at different times by different interests. And I suppose we could use that description to describe quite a number of professional fields at this time. But I think youth work is probably, we would argue, is particularly vulnerable to the social and political forces at work at the moment. We've seen, for example, recent cutbacks in local authority funding and the emergence of the positive for youth policy, which emphasises voluntary and private sector involvement and is currently reshaping youth services Um, now then I'll press this button Ah, yeah so this is the I'm just drawing on the data here um, briefly to use this quote because I think what this does is illustrate nicely the Um, the nature of the field so we're talking here about a field where the boundaries between the roles that people are adopting are quite fragile and porous so we have people who are working across professional areas and often themselves they're making moves so they might at one time be a connections worker and the next they're working as um, a careers advisor with young people so there's a, a, quite a lot of switching between roles as people pick up fairly opportunistically on current funding streams and work opportunities. I think it's important to draw attention to this, the nature of this field because it does affect the kind of expectations that our students have of how they're going to Obtain and maintain employment into the future. So when we come to look at the data um, from the interviews I think we'll see how they're responding to the professional field that they're embedded in. So looking at the research we've done ah, no, First of all we're going to look at the nature of this professional qualification. So This is providing flexible routes to qualification. What we mean by that is students can step off at the cert HE level or the foundation degree um, to get a qualification. Youth work has only been um, a degree level qualification since 2010, so they can, the, the full qualification would be to stay on two honours level and the the qualification is validated across the UK and in the Republic of Ireland. Students are already engaged in employment. That's a a requirement of the qualification. So they're students, but they're also workers. The work-based learning, the nature of the work-based learning... That we're trying to deliver is one that allows our students to make connections between their experience of practice and the ideas, uh, the theories, the concepts that we're bringing to them through the course materials. The nature of the audience, 47% of students beginning study without A-levels, um, I think is significant. And students are coming from a wide range of contexts. That again relates to the nature of this field. So whilst we're referring to youth work, because that's the title of our qualification, there's a wide range of professional roles within that. So some of the people working with young people wouldn't refer to themselves as youth workers. And sometimes when they use that term, it's used fairly loosely as a sort of umbrella term. So just looking now at the kind of research that we've done, we go. So, small-scale research using qualitative interviews, as I was saying earlier, trying to get at the texture of students' lives, to understand in their own voices what studying with the university feels like and how it fits in with the rest of their lives. To help us do this, we've used a broadly biographical approach within the interviews, encouraging people to look backwards and forwards in their lives. And trying to get a sense of that trajectory of their lives and their careers. Okay, so what we're going to do now is look at the data. And Stephen's going to take a perspective where he's using a single case study to get that sense of one individual's learning trajectory as they engage with the course. And then Terrell's going to look across the data... And pick out some of the themes that have emerged from it. And then I'm going to do a little summary at the end, and then I hope we'll have time for some questions and discussions beyond that. Stephen. Thank you,
6: Roger. So the methodology applied in this research um, related, as Roger said, to a small scale qualitative investigation with a focus on students from low, low socio-economic backgrounds. So that needs to be taken into account in relation to the kinds of stories we were eliciting. I think it's fair to say that a significant number of entrants into programmes like ours do come from um, what we might call non-traditional HE backgrounds. And therefore, um, the opportunity to dig deeper into their um, personal biographies in terms of our histories of participation in education is quite revealing in terms of thinking forward about employability and where we might draw some insight about where employability emerges from. Um, and I hope to reveal some of that in the exploration of a particular case study in a moment but also looking, as Tiro will, in the more general, looking at the data more generally. We engaged in semi-structured interviews with 15 students, mostly face-to-face, but some with telephone um, interviews, exploring their past experiences, um, their prehistories, if you like, of engagement with higher education or within our program in particular, and their current and recent experiences of study and work and their future aspirations. Interestingly, the small team of researchers—it seems rather large for a small-scale investigation such as this. There were six researchers involved, but what was good. Of about that was we were all related to this particular programme in some sense and each of us um, conducted one or more interviews so it meant that we had some degree of intimate involvement in not just generating the data but in terms of analysing the data and that's been an interesting experience in and of itself as we negotiate amongst ourselves our different um, interpretive frameworks if you like and I think that builds in some degree of validity to some of the conclusions, but I guess when we present our data to a group of people like yourselves today, you're going to apply your own interpretive frameworks to what to what we give and we'd be really interested to hear feedback either in the session afterwards or any time during the day. One of the things that we found in um, potentially rewarding about engaging in what we might broadly term biographical approach to researching these students' lives and then a subsequent analysis of the narratives that they were presenting, was it provided us an opportunity to dig deep, maybe deeper than we usually get an opportunity to do in our day-to-day contact with students. And we have to remember that this is a context of the Open University and this is a context of central academics interviewing students from a distance. And we wouldn't have the kind of involvement in their day-to-day lives as might be the case in other institutions. So, as a way into the data, we'd like to start with an analysis, or an exploration at least, of one case study that we've chosen to focus on. And that case study relates to a participant who we'll call Samantha. We've anonymised all data because some of the insights that we draw are from very personal accounts of experience. And in offering that anonymity, we were able to elicit quite significant critical incidents in students' lives, particularly from their pre um, prehistories, that have shaped their um, aspirations and their the sense of themselves. Samantha's story is going to come in three parts, and I can tell you it was a job to reduce it to three parts. Um, Roger said, I couldn't have an hour and a half to read the whole um, interview transcript out to you. but that, that would have given the, the fuller story and it's the, the, the advantage of this approach is it gives very very rich data, the disadvantage is that you've got to extract something from that and make some sense of it and I hope it speaks to you in light of um, conversations about employability if our original research wasn't directly concerned with employability whereas it was much more concerned with issues around widening participation so, Samantha's story, her history of participation in education. Samantha left school at 16, having achieved grades D in her GS- GCSEs, these were the highest grades that she'd, that she'd achieved, and she, she revealed in the interview um, that she didn't really try at school. It was just school, it wasn't interesting to me. I didn't really have an idea about what I wanted to do. Um, what I found interesting in analysing Samantha's story, if you like, was this sense at this point in her um, history of participation and education, that her achievement seemed to be linked to a sense of who she was and what she wanted to do, and that she was a a key point of transition with having a developed sense of direction. And I think what was revealed within Samantha's interview was as um, events happened in her life that challenged her sense of herself and who she was and um, her sense of purpose, um, a sense of what she might become became available to her, which in turn shifted her attitude towards education and her attitude towards career possibilities, Choices, options, so on and so forth. A key event that coincided with Samantha's leaving school was her finding out that she was pregnant. Now, we can read this in lots of different ways and I'd like to give you how I read this. For me, this, and for Samantha, I believe, this gave her a sense of purpose. but actually, it gave her access to what she saw as an adult role which was um, parenthood and motherhood in particular. However, it also came with a dawning realisation, and she was happy about that, she was, she was ecstatic in fact, but it also came with a dawning realisation of how am I going to look after this child? How am I going to um, meet its needs? So on and so forth. Um, she, she claimed at 16 you don't really think about these things. She was very happy at the news but it, it started to challenge um, her achievement thus far in education and, and in relation to how she perceived her own employability. Um, I should say, this um, pregnancy didn't come to term, so therefore um, Samantha's opportunity to realise her ambition to become a mother, which is a key, key ambition in this story, was, was um, forestalled for some time. At a later point, she, she, she does become pregnant. And um, she, 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 she becomes a mother to two children, and that's, that's a significant event in her, um, the development of her identity and in terms of her learning trajectories. But as we can see, I think it's fair to say that Samantha would not appear, as a, if we analysed her story at this point, as a traditional entrant into higher education given her um, academic profile and, and other life experiences. As we move on, and um, the the fuller case study of Samantha is available for you as photocopies of it, should should you wish to have a look at it. As we move on through Samantha's room, as we moved on analysing her um, her responses, the question of learning trajectories and vocational identity came up. Um, It's interesting that Samantha was working within an amusement arcade after leaving school, and um, she was made um, with family. She got that job through the fact that her mother worked. There. Um, they were made redundant on mass, and the, the, interestingly, this is a story about women coming together as well. Her, her mother, herself, and her sister pooled their resources and bought a small business in, in, in the West Country as a way of kind of managing the transition from redundancy and, and, and maintaining some sort of income. Um, uh, 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 in, in and of itself interesting but after a short period of time of engaging in that Samantha came, came to start to realise that this, this looked like a dead end this was not what she um, wanted for herself and returned to the idea of engaging in a career maybe with children um, so she returns to research GCSEs and um, and pursue other qualifications. Uh, uh, her, her decision to do this was tied up with, with these other incidents we've just just mentioned. She she she, she studied her GCSEs and um, raised her attainment to, 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 to B grades, which was a significant difference for her, and also uh, and also had an impact on changing her her image of herself as a learner. Um, as now, as herself as a successful learner, she began to pursue a career in childcare, studying MVQs at the local college. Interestingly, I, I think this is an indication of an emerging vocational identity um, for, for Samantha, which ties in with her own personal ambitions about parenthood, it ties in about access to, a, to a, 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 an occupational area but that had meaning for her and, and, and maybe meaning before what's beyond what she was already involved in. Interestingly, not an area of work that necessarily requires a graduate qualification at this point, but this is a person who is now seeing education as a viable option and educational goals and aims that are extending beyond their existing circumstances are emerging. This is interesting. It's something just on the horizon that keeps emerging for Samantha in, in analysing her story. When she actually had children and um, secured a job in child care, what she realised was she wasn't keen on other people's children. She very much enjoyed observing her own child growing up, but she revealed in the interview that she became impatient with other parents when observing their children, their behaviour didn't quite correspond with her own daughters, and that this didn't sit well with her being... Um, in this field of work. So quite pragmatically and I think quite ingeniously she, she looked elsewhere and what she did was she just moved up the age range until she found an age range she'd like to work with. Um, and, and that age range co- corresponded with the field of work that we're involved with which, it, with, which being youth work, offered not only the opportunity to engage in work that she could fit around her life, but it also opened up a career path, as Roger mentioned earlier on. YouthWorks carried a professional qualification alongside it for some forty no yeah, forty years. Okay? But the level of professional the level of qualification has risen over that period of time, and its most recent level being BA honors means that the tangible educational horizon is is, in, 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 is being extended and presented in front of Samantha and she can see it and she can see that it's accessible so um, interestingly Samantha has access to part time work, she volunteers she seeks out her own um, initial engagement with possible workplaces she becomes involved with scouts as a scout leader, she works with the local authority in a part-time capacity as an advice and guidance worker, and then sees these things as as stepping stones towards building a career and building a a, a professional identity, which leads to her applying for a course with the Open University, working with young people, course. At the point of interview, Samantha was on her final module of her foundation degree, which at that point would confer professional qualification in youth work. And I can say that she's now succeeded and secured that. So this is a story of twists and turns, non-standard trajectories, um, critical life incidents playing a significant role in shaping this person's um, trajectory. I'd like to just... I'm not going to imbue this with too much more analysis... But it was interesting that when Sam was, Samantha, sorry, becoming very familiar. When Samantha was invited to reflect back on her experience, the way that she told it, looking back, was that she's always thought, I can do anything. And that's what I tell everybody I meet, that they can do anything they want, you know. So it wasn't really a conscious decision, oh, I could do that, I could go to university. It was just, actually, that's the course that I need to do to be what I want to be and it happened to be university rather than college so that's just what it was and I had to do the access course to get in. What's interesting for me at least in Samantha's story but it's not unique by, by any sense and, and Tyrrell will take us through the, the more general responses is that there is depending on where you access the story I'd ask you to ask yourselves does this look like a viable HE student in the current environment. So when you look at a student with a set of GCS a clutch of GCSEs which have got D next to them, at what point do we think, do you know what? That possibility is still open to you. Or do we say actually, I have a route to you. How do we respond to these people as we come across them? That's just a, a thought, something to think about. But I've titled this bit Resilience and reflexivity, because I think given the nature of the conversations today around employability, it seems to me that the opportunity to drill into students' experiences and understand where success has been demonstrated in non-traditional engagement with higher education, if you like, it reveals something. And I think two of the things that have been revealed within the student stories that we've engaged in It's the incredible degree of resilience that they've demonstrated, irrespective of what life's thrown at them. It's also about their uh, their ability to take up opportunities. And we've used terms like they're entrepreneurial. They're able to move quickly. They're able to kind of um, adapt their identities to to ever-changing environments. But that sounds a little bit... Sometimes that that, that can be read quite negatively, as if they're simply opportunistic. But actually what we see in a lot of these stories is a series of considered reflections, very pragmatic choices, and a a sense of step-by-step working towards the next horizon. I think it's interesting that Samantha has obtained her foundation degree, and it would be lovely to, at some point to follow these 15 students up maybe in, three years' time to revisit the the what-next aspect. I'm going to hand over to Tyrell at this point, who's going to um, expand and and, and draw upon the wider data.
7: Thanks. So, yeah, I'm just going to talk more um, generally about our students and and their experience and, and how that fits into some of the things that we've already looked at. Um, This morning, I was just thinking about our title, about the notion of maximising opportunities in terms of uh, students' learning and their work-based learning. And I think Steve's um, discussion of Samantha's experience really explains how um, Samantha may not traditionally come across as an HE um, or university student at the point where she gets D's in her GCSEs, but she has a huge amount of work experience and life experience and experience in a range of different workplaces that somehow supports her to kind of transfer um, and bridge into her sort of studies at the OU and, and finding her journey. And her journey is, like the rest of our students, really quite varied. Um, and I've highlighted for each of the, the quotes some of the key points for you, rather than um, me talking it through, because I think the students' voices need to speak for themselves really. Um, and myself, she... And myself and my colleague Sheila, sorry, um, who was part of the, the team with us, looked at um, these students' experiences thematically, really, to look at positives. What is it about our students so at the OU? They tend to study part time, so they can take up to six years to study and become qualified. Given that, um, as Roger was explaining, the, the challenges in youth work, how you know, how do they tra- traverse this sort of um, process that, that they go through with us? And what is it about you know, our study and about their experiences that make them um, able to continue and succeed? Um, and some of our students have studied at HE level before, but not very many. Um, some of those uh, studied at HE level unsuccessfully, so didn't complete. Uh, very few um, have formal uh, qualifications, as um, Roger showed us with the data. Um, and many of our students that we spoke to talked about these. Um, Fragile Identities as Learners, and Lee's a real example of that. And I think, um, you know, Martha talked about some of the challenges that, that mature students face going back into um, uh, internships, going back into the workplace. Our students are kind of trying to manage that with work-based learning being a core part of their studies. They might have done, um, had quite a successful experience going through their first module, which is more work-related, so it's, it's more theoretical. Their second module which i 'm the um, module chair for, they then have to go out into the workplace and so that dynamic as an option depending on sort of what you 're thinking about or what you provide for your students, adds another real dimension for our students to um, to challenge them and, and for some of them, that is exactly what they 're looking for for others um, it becomes a real challenge. A number of our students spoke about um, the fact that h e wasn 't for people like them and I think Beth and Bob are really good examples of that, you know, so working class, pe- class people don't do degrees. Boys from my background either go to the factory or the forces. And um, from my own experience, uh, I am a qualified youth worker and have come in to teach um, youth workers now. I remember very much when I was going and doing, uh, we did placement learning when I studied, there was a real challenge going, going into a workplace and saying, I am doing a degree in youth work. There was, that was potentially quite an issue for my identity, about whether I acknowledged that, what that meant. I thought, you know, some of my colleagues who I then worked with thought I was coming in and thinking I was somebody because I was at university and, you know. So there's a lot of complex challenges for our students when they work and study. And I, I think we need to sort of be really aware of that. But not least of all, there were really complex things that our students were going through. And as I say, some of our students take up to seven years to complete. So we had various experiences such as early parenthood, family bereavement, the birth of a child, um, and relationship breakdowns and redundancy. So those were the sort of things that they were going through as well as, um, you know, this important work-based learning experience that we see as adding value to a degree programme. So... Given all of that, given the complexity of what they're going through, um, and I like this notion. And I think it's something that I'm aware of, you know, it's not just a degree program; it's value-added. Um, so, given that we add all these values for students, you know, what motivates them? And for many of our students, really, what came through was um, a passion. There was a response, for, um, particularly for youth work students, about responding to changing professional requirements. Wanting to develop to develop themselves as a practitioner, there was a real um, strong uh, sense or theme of people wanting to make something of themselves, either uh, for themselves personally or very much for opportunities for their for their children. Amy is a good example of that, and a personal challenge. You know, I think I'm quite good at this. I think I can do this. And/or um, as a professional, but and/or I think I can study at, at university, and I want to be able to prove that I can do that. There was also a real theme within youth work as a profession um, about these accidental journeys into youth work. And when we're looking at internships, and I thought it was really interesting in terms of what Martha was saying, how you know, um, maybe the internship process or the work-based learning process enabled people to really almost dip their toe into different types of work and make sure that whilst they knew the broad theme, and I think Samantha's a good example of that, going and working and actually doing that job day to day, is very different and so you might want to work with children and or young people but you know whether you want to work with the littlies or whether you want to work with them when they're teenagers and it's noisy or it's a classroom or it's formal education informal you know having the opportunity of work-based learning or internships or placements gives you that um, breadth of experience to really inform uh, your choices and so for our students actually we found out that the motivations and study intentions weren't fixed in fact, quite often they're changed as a result of the work-based learning opportunities they had. So our students have to do um, at least some of their hours over the three work-based learning modules they do on the programme in a different setting. Some of our students, that's a real challenge, and that's something that they almost kick against. You know, Usually through discussion, they can see that this is the opportunity to not only evidence that you can work in different settings, but as I say, and it's an expression I do use with them, you can dip your toe into a kind of work that you think you might be interested in, and actually go and see if it's what you think it's all about. So um, coming back to this notion of value added, which I think is really important, but our students, many of our students, and many of your students I'm sure, and, and it's come through already this morning, have a number of different challenges already. Um, And then on top of the degree, we add value by um, adding work-based learning experiences, which adds new challenges as well. Um, So Joe, for example, works between 7 and 8 in the morning. So he goes to school early, and that's where he fits his study in. Um, As we've already highlighted, for many of our students, um, they may be more confident about their practice, but they've got very anxious and very... um, (coughs) Sort of fragile identities as learners, and so the notion of coming into an academic environment, writing assignments is is daunting, and, and that 's holly 's language um, and she 's very anxious about that, and she wasn 't the only student. Uh, life gets in the way, uh, so student, students are, are often combining paid work, voluntary work, study, and the rest of their lives. Um, Bob, for example, I think, does a full-time job, three part-time jobs. He's doing his degree in youth work with the OU. And because his employer's changed and he was working in a higher education college and that's been taken over by somebody else, they're now asking him to do a level three qualification as well. So, you know, Bob is... um, I think when you talk about added value to Bob, Bob's already kind of you know, negotiating that particularly expertly. And so I think for some of us, for some of these, these students, it's about enabling them to identify all those different things that they've done throughout their lives. So Sam's uh, Samantha's example of that point where she leaves her study with uh, D-grade GCSEs to the point where she enters in the OU. There is a huge amount of experience that she's got there and how we support her to draw that and recognise it. Um, and I think this is really one of the key things that we were looking for is is what are the factors that support our students to get through um, and to complete and to be successful. Unsurprisingly um, family and friends are are key factors. I think the other theme that really came across very clearly was students self-motivation and determination and quite often by the time they they access particularly our course at the OU they really have already negotiated, like Samantha, whether we call it internships or work-based learning or life experience, they've tried a number of things. They've made various um, decisions throughout their life that this is where they want to be. Um, and we particularly like Mary's quote about bloody-minded determination, possibly, you know, to get through the number of, of years study and the different processes. Um, would also, some of the things that did come through were some of the things that we can do things about as well, so OU staff and tutors and support from colleagues and employers was key, and how we negotiate um, students to, to find that support. Another strong theme um, for us was that students were able to imagine their future, and by being able to imagine their future, the challenges that they were facing in the here and now, juggling work-based learning... Um, the study, etc., and this thing that apparently is called a life that you can have alongside um, was key for them to be able to to see um, and and to to develop the resilience that Steve was talking about. What was really important that we found out for us is is that whilst we talk about added value and we we think about work-based learning and what it provides for our students, our students had their very clear own agendas and aspirations for their future lives and careers Mm -hmm. and where they thought this was going to take them. They had imagined futures uh, that not necessarily been mapped out by ourselves as, as youth workers and professionals and academics. Um, some students looked forward to careers in youth work, others looked for future um, careers in a range of different areas or, or those that weren't so clear. Um, but that they got a lot out of, uh, of the processes of both studying and being in, in work-based learning. So, just for us broadly, some of the conclusions and further questions we identified were around um, understanding the, the complexity of students' lives, um, that I think, as was highlighted by Martha, I think, you know the idea of, work, uh, of mature students who may be carers, they may, be, um, they may have children themselves, they may have other work opportunities, and how we... Support them to negotiate all of these, and still be able to access. Um, if you, you know, whether it's as in our case, fundamental to the course, they can't pass without um, undertaking these modules and completing them, or whether it's perceived to be added value. How we make sure that they can be included in those. That we, um, as part of that, have an understanding of students as with their multiple identities. For our students, they might be very fragile learners, and taking that learning out of the classroom, whether that's the traditional classroom or. Distance learning and into a workplace can be challenging. That the work-based learning or um, internship processes are there to support students in that non-linear way as well, so that students can change their identities or, or change their trajectories depending on um, where life leads them or where their study may want to take them. And for us, and Stephen highlighted this, we're central academics, so we're based in Milton Keynes, and we interview students from across. Um, the nations, it's really important for us to keep in touch with who our students are, what's going on for them and be able to support them um, effectively and appropriately and, and to continually think about how to bridge that gap between the skills that the sector may think that they need the students' aspirations um, and, and professional requirements as well. So that's that bit and I shall hand back over to you. you want to take questions,
5: Um, Yes, I don't know quite how we manage that between us. But what I'd just like to do before then is pick out three themes which seem to me to be particularly relevant to this meeting um, that comes out of our data. One is how we think about student careers, and there's been a long-standing model of individual rational decision-making attached to career decisions, which has never been very satisfactory and it, it fails to take account of the wider social, economic, political landscape in which people are making their individual decisions. So it seems to me what we see in our data is career decision-making as an interaction between those individual trajectories that we saw our students on and that wider social and economic and political landscape that they're operating within. And that fits much better within people like Phil Hodkinson's careership theory. And what we're seeing there is the the nonlinearity of those careers, as Stephen and Tyrrell have pointed to, and the kind of stop-start sideways movements that are involved in what we might refer to as career progression. And what we're seeing in terms of the characteristics of our students there is a a kind of shape-shifting or um, flexibility or entrepreneurialism which is allowing them to make these moves according to the circumstances they find themselves in. And in a way, I think it's that ability to negotiate change from within a framework of values that they're acquiring from our teaching, we hope. Um, to make those changes um, as the circumstances change. And uh, the, the point I'm making there is that may be the most important set of skills and capabilities that they take from their studies. The second point, so that's about how we think about student careers. The second point is about how we think about our students becoming professionals And one of the dominant theories in this field is Levenwanger's idea of people moving from peripheral participation in the field of practice towards more central engagement. What seemed to me to be the case with, with our students is that there wasn't a strong sense of that. And I think that may be down to the field, as I was describing it earlier, as having quite weak boundaries around this professional field. So whilst our students were very enthusiastic about working with young people, as we saw, they had, some of them, a passion for that work, they didn't really recognise their own identities within the idea of becoming a youth worker and being a member of that community. And I think, to some extent, that's to do with their appreciation that they would need in pursuing their careers, to be very fleet footed and, and mobile and flexible in moving between the multiplicity of roles that are available to them within work with young people, the wider field, as funding streams change and as, as um, political and educational priorities change. So they were, they had more of a chameleon quality about it, it seems to me. The third point is the way we think about our teaching and Tyrrell's already drawn attention to this. If you're you're designing work-based learning courses you need to be able to make it real for students out there. You need to be clear who you're addressing and the context that you're talking about. If you can't do that, you're going to lose them. You're going to lose their interest. They're going to see that this isn't relevant to their situation. And there is a tension here between the established literature, which maybe gives a slightly idealised picture of what this field is about, the regulatory frameworks, which are keen to establish and police boundaries around this field of practice, and the lived reality of our students who are operating in a a very fast-changing and mobile field. So from our point of view, it's really important that we keep up with the nature of that field so that we can as accurately as possible represent it to them and and draw on examples from it. And for us, this kind of the research that we've been able to do with the internal funding from the centre has been a really important contribution (coughs) to our renewing our understanding of what this field is about. Okay. So should we do questions? Five
2: minutes. Go ahead. Um, a, it's
3: really fascinating the, sort of the continent all that I'm going to ask a very specific question around is um, a part of the programme so given all this complexity of people's lives firstly how do we fit in the placements around it and, and Secondly, if confidence to take up the place for so you what preparation do
4: they
5: get as part of, as, as part of that process? Do you need to come over here?
6: No, I, I doubt it. Do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's in the terminology, mm-hmm. and this is really important. Work-based learning means a lot of things to a lot of different people, and it's not a uniform thing. You interestingly use the term placement. These students are bring. This is a continuation of the development of their um, learning. So many students are bringing the working context with them so they can nominate um, the, 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 the workplace, workplace setting to meet the requirements of the programme, yeah. which is considerably diff- different from an administrative perspective to placement. It does become difficult, and this is the difficult bit, where they have to engage in a, a piece of alternative practice. And that becomes an increasing challenge for students who maybe don't have access to a broader range of opportunities. And that's where our work hit, um, within the central team and in association with the you know, associate veterans and the field more generally, which we, have, we maintain very close relationships with, come into place of so what we can advise, guide and support students. But we wouldn't want to pretend for a moment that that isn't a, a, a critical point in a student's engagement with our programme. It very often is. But, but we're primed and ready to respond to that. Uh, it, it, we, we're not so involved in placing students. It, it, administratively, makes it makes life a little yeah. bit easier, but on other it, 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 where, where you gain on one thing, you get a headache from,
5: from another. And it's a different kind of model in that rather than using placements that people go out to, they're already in work, our students. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so the study go, runs alongside the work that they
2: And, oh,
7: sorry. It's just um, the, the bit you said about um, the very work. But there was one quote there that where the students said
5: she's on benefits. So well, when we say work, that could be voluntary work.
6: Mm. Yeah.
5: They're not necessarily employed, but they are engaging meaningful practice. Well, they're not necessarily in paid employment, but they are working. Mm. Mm.
4: Um. Is this is a question to one side in a way just on the research method and you said you had a team of six researchers I just wondered did that pose particular challenges for the interpretation of these Mm -hmm. narratives Mm -hmm. I mean you said at the start Roger it it was fascinating interpreting the narratives and we had one sort of one single narrative of one person and then we had the cross themes and I just wondered whether there were any areas that you could share with us that if there were particular um, different interpretations coming from the team of researchers and did that throw up yeah. issues for how you understood youth work, mm. how you understood the concept of career, how you un- you know, those those sort of issues. Now, that might be kind of an outside <laughs> <bottom line. laughs> <I'm> sort <laughs> of talk
5: rather than yeah. what you could That yeah. It's a really interesting question. And, and I, I think the reason it worked was because we worked closely together anyway on the teaching So we know a lot about each other in terms of our perspectives on youth work um, and on research. So that helps a lot. The other thing was we did the analysis by coming together and talking about it quite a lot, in the same way as we would do in a course team meeting. We had meetings that brought us together to discuss what we thought was emerging from the data, and we each came in with codings and we compared those and we discussed them. So I think it's, it's a, a very interesting point about how you go about research and the importance if you've got multiple people in place, there has to be that level of understanding and communication between them. I actually found it easier than I found in the past, where we've had uh, contracted researchers who are going out and doing the interviews and I'm looking at a transcript, because I find that quite difficult to get inside. But um, I found this way of doing it actually worked quite well. Others may not agree.
7: No, no. Can I just? I, I think that was a real added thing. I mean, I've been with the OU, so I'm a newbie for the next 25 years, but for 18 months. So it's been—it was hugely supportive, actually, as a project to come together and having taught at another university and being at, um, a youth work myself a youth work practitioner, professional myself. So there's—we haven't always agreed, but that's been really.
6: And okay. Challenging, and Challenging. I think that's brought something to the analysis that mm-hmm. are different, sometimes subtly, but sometimes mm-hmm. starkly different interpretations. We've had to negotiate this to be able to sit together and say this is our research and here's mm-hmm. the analysis and be very comfortable in being able to do that and have people do it on our behalf at different points in time. So in, in, in and of itself, it has been an interesting process uh, I think we probably, probably benefit from spending some more time on unpacking that mm-hmm. itself because we haven't had luxury of the time to look at it the, the other dimension
5: of that is I think that, that research is not just about outputs it's about process and this is, for us was a developmental process mm-hmm. so ok we've
2: just got two last questions over on that
6: table there. oh yeah I was um, I was wondering about these work based um, placements or whatever we want to call them and um, do they have a mentor or are they assessed during this process? Um, does that form part of the programme or how does it work? It, it, it's it, 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 Along those lines, workplace, the workplace learning element is an assessed element of the programme. It's an integral part of the assessed programme. There's continuous assessment and summative assessment. The assessment is undertaken both in the workplace and alongside the workplace by um, scrutinising students' reflective accounts. They're addressing um, specific tasks set by the university based on occupational standards. So there's a a whole, there's a complex set of arrangements that come together that frame that work-based learning environment. And I I suspect we've we've all been involved in this in one way, shape or form, probably for too long because we've become so familiar with those arrangements, we forget how complex they are and, and how they actually come to frame the students' experience. There is a whole set of criteria about what they can nominate as a placement and what, would, uh, or a workplace learning environment, and what will be accepted. We yeah. use what we call supervisors rather than mentors, yeah, that perform that function. So yeah, all the can, can I just, can I just, I'm sorry, we need to move to
2: lunch.
7: So can I, Richard, just? I was just going to add I just going to say just because it answers two questions. Actually, students only do five hours face-to-face work a week. Um, so it's not like a full-time work-based learning placement either,
4: because of it? Thank you. I, I just
6: wondered, what's were there any surprises that came out of what you of your of your stories? Because you know, I'm a, I'm a an OU student and an AL, so I, as, as well as a full-time academic here. Was there any? Have you got any messages for us at, at the OU and for our colleagues around the room from this?
7: I think just to take that from Mike, because what I. Didn't, Live with today comes from um, something that uh, Sheila, our colleague and I, um, presented at um, the International Youth Work and Youth Studies Conference in Glasgow in, in August around positivity, and we presented it to um, fellow youth work professionals who deliver similar type courses. To almost silence at the end, which is always a little bit, and you know, I recognise our students in this. I recognise students when I was at a previous institution. Um, and they recognise their students in these stories as well. And I think for, m- for me, it's, it is a- about thinking about the experiences that our students bring with them and, and making sure that when we create work-based learning opportunities, whether it's embedded or internships, that we, we recognise the range of skills students have and bring and that we don't create hoops for people to jump through to evidence stuff that they could probably already evidence some other way, but that we work out, you know, that we su- support students to find out where they are now and bring that and develop their skills.
4: And I think that's
6: absolutely heart of our work-based learning that we do, that we don't expect our students to go through hoops mm-hmm.
5: and to do the same things yeah. that they've already done elsewhere.
7: When everything else in their lives is going on and absolutely. changing. and yeah.
5: The, the, the other thing I draw attention to, which you know already, is the, the disruption that study causes to students' lives, other aspects of their lives, and the sacrifices they make. One of the people I interviewed, as she said at one point, the, the consequences of, of her dropping out of the course was that her family would kill her. Because she, obviously, they've made some sacrifices yeah. for her to be doing this. Yeah. Well, thank you
2: very much. Thank you, Roger, Terrell, and David, and... Um...